0: Welcome to the Philosophy Cast, where we take complicated philosophical topics and break them down for everyone to understand, so that we can gain new perspectives on the world. I'm your host, Alexander Chotai, and in today's episode, we'll be covering the phenomenon of political and ideological messages in music. How are political messages inserted into music, and can it be used to manipulate us? These questions and more will be covered in today's episode. Perhaps no lines have resonated more when it comes to political persuasion than Reagan's call to Mikhail Gorbachev to eliminate the divisions between East and West Germany. We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together. That the advance of human liberty, the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Speeches have different functions in both democratic and non-democratic societies. Persuading a voter base, retaining loyalty, or inspiring change are just a few. People also tend to think about political images, the patriotic visuals of Paul Revere's take on the Boston Massacre, which illustrates British soldiers mercilessly firing into an innocent crowd of colonists, to World War II propaganda posters which sought to promote ideologies ranging from Nazism, Communism, and Democracy. But the focus of our first episode, and what I want to talk about today, is something we don't often consider as evidence of political messaging. Music. Music is something basically all of us interact with on a daily basis, so it's no wonder that artists use their platform to promote the ideas that they favor. Beyond the views of the original artists, we can also find leaders in political parties taking advantage of the memorability music offers in an attempt to set change in motion. Music, it has been demonstrated, is the perfect candidate to be politically persuasive. The very question of how music sways public opinion was something even ancient Greek philosophers occupied themselves with. Everybody's heard the name Plato, naturally, as he is one of the most prominent Greek philosophers out there. Generally speaking, Plato viewed the state as an entity which should be responsible for most aspects of this citizen's life, and should take on the role of a protector, an educator, and overall, a nurturer of the populace. Because of Plato's view of the state and his awareness of how deeply music could emotionally drive people, he drew a less-than-hopeful conclusion about the power musical innovation could hold. Plato would go on to state, quote, "...any musical innovation is full of danger to the whole state and ought to be prohibited. When modes of music change, the fundamental laws of the state always change with them." Quote. Plato was concerned about change in the musical world because he thought it would lead to the change in government, which he so vehemently opposed. Plato serves as an example to us that making a connection between music and the state is not a new idea, although time has only proved Plato's considerations even more relevant. Plato's proposed solution to this problem was to ban the newer music of the time, that being music which made use of the Ionian and Lydian modes. To Plato, this music lacked the seriousness of the Dorian and Phrygian modes, which he felt were more conducive for moral growth. At the time, Plato's thoughts on music were not taken very seriously throughout Greece, but what he did manage to accomplish was setting the stage for later interpretations of music in the Western Hemisphere. Also, it turns out that Plato and the ancient Greeks were not the only ones pondering the topic. To turn to Eastern schools of thought for a minute, Confucius admired music's ability to inspire unity amongst people, and to persuade these people to carry out a common political goal. However, Confucius also condemned music, which appealed only to the ears, as weakening to an individual's character. Finally, we can see Plato's sentiments echoed in several religious teachings. Hebrew philosophers warned their followers that profane songs would destroy the world, and claimed that songs imbued with religion could spare them from such a fate. In the Islamic world, philosophers admitted that music was a double-edged sword that could be imbued with either evil or good. Finally, we can see the Christian attitude towards music expressed throughout history and the teachings of the Quakers, who opposed music as they did all forms of art and condemned it as a tool of secularism. Plato would find himself being proven right when it came to music ushering in political change. For example, take a look at American slavery. It was not uncommon for slaves to sing as they worked and songs which subliminally spoke of eventual freedom as well as ways to reach that freedom were commonplace. Now, when analyzing songs of slavery, it's important to realize that explicit rebellion was swiftly and harshly punished. When we look at how slaves resisted their captivity, we almost are always looking at small actions which collectively made a big difference. Music is a perfect example of such actions. For example, The spiritual, Wade in the Water, was believed to contain lyrics, which served as instructions on how to use the Underground Railroad. Let's take a listen. Wade in the water, Wade in the water, children, Wade in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. God's Gonna Trouble the Water Some historians interpret the song's repetition of the phrase Wade in the Water to be a call to slaves to get in water while escaping their masters in order to hide their scent trail from slave-catching dogs. In addition to providing instructions for escape, other slave songs sought to give slaves hope in face of their horrible living conditions. With slaves being newly introduced to Christianity, many parallels were drawn between the Bible and their immediate surroundings in order to create songs which would keep them going, despite the terrible odds they faced. Many saw the Exodus, or the leading of Israelite slaves out of Egypt by Moses, as something to hope for in their own situation. Additionally, Depending on where the song was being sung, comparisons of the Ohio or Mississippi to the Jordan River were also made. Of course, slavery would be a regrettably long-lived institution, only really officially ended by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But the power these songs had were intrinsic in their nature. As was said, violent rebellion rarely ended well for slaves and so whatever kept slaves afloat would prove to be indispensable comfort for their otherwise grim lives. It's also worth considering that perhaps groups maintaining an identity in a society which attempts to dehumanize them could be an act of political and social rebellion in and of itself. Music just like slaves starting families, proved to be a way for them to maintain humanity in a position where both society and the law told them they were nothing more than property. As for songs like Wait in the Water, some estimate that around 100,000 slaves escaped captivity through the Underground Railroad, very thoroughly proving songs like these to be impactful on slave life. Some could argue that resistance to slavery was one of the very first forms of political music present in the independent country of the United States, but it very well wouldn't be the last. Right now, the United States is very politically divided, but political conflict, as has been stated, is something which repeats time and time again. Let's look back to another time in American history where the nation was split between two opposing sides, the Vietnam War era. As many Americans know, the Vietnam War was an extremely controversial endeavor, with some feeling that the war was unhumanitarian and unjustified, while some supported the cause and felt that the soldiers fighting for it deserved the utmost respect. To analyze the role music had to play in this torn time of American history, Let's analyze the lyrics of the song Ballad of the Green Berets The Ballad of the Green Berets was written by Barry Sadler and released on March 5th, 1966 where it quickly became a number one hit with the billboard magazine. Barry Sadler or more appropriately referred to as Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler was himself an active duty member of the United States Army Special Forces otherwise known is the Green Berets. In 1964, Sadler's tour as a combat medic would be cut short when he was severely injured by a punji stick, a very commonly seen booby trap in the Vietnam War. During his lengthy hospitalization, Sadler wrote a ballad about the heroism of the Special Forces, which eventually found its way to Robert Moore, an author who was writing a book entitled The Green Berets at the time. Moore would assist Sadler in formatting his work into a pop song, which would be released to the military in 1965, and shortly thereafter to the whole world, where it quickly became immensely popular. Here are the song's opening lines. Fighting soldiers from the sky, Fearless men who jump and die, Men who mean just what they say, The brave men of the Green Beret. These first couple of lines hope to create an image in the listener's mind that the special forces are honorable men. These opening lines don't just call the soldiers brave, but instead, fearless men who jump and die. When we consider what these lines actually mean, we get the mental image of soldiers sacrificing their lives for the country. Sadler takes his praise for this unit further, with the line, Men who mean just what they say. This line is included to argue that the soldiers are, in fact, honest, and not as corrupt as some popular media portrayed American soldiers at the time. The Ballad of the Green Berets is an impressively crafted song for the resources Sadler had when recording, that being just himself and the assistance of others like Moore to work with. I would strongly recommend all to listen to the song in its entirety, but to touch on the song's relation to political music one last time, I'd like to draw attention to the third verse of the song. Back at home, a young wife waits. Her Green Beret has met his fate. He had died for those oppressed, leaving her this last request. At this point in the song, we are being told about a wife whose husband, a Green Beret, died in combat. We can assume this is included in the song in order to draw an emotional response. But the line I think is interesting when it comes to political messages is he had died for those oppressed in the context of a pro-war stance on the vietnamese conflict we can only assume that this line is referring to the victims of communism in vietnam out of all political messages in the song this line is the most explicit it portrays american soldiers as fighting for those who cannot fight for themselves which in the case of the song is most likely vietnamese citizens What this line is suggesting is something many would consider to be highly controversial and widely opposed in the Vietnam War era, but yet the song still managed to be a massive success. Such success is what makes the Ballad of the Green Berets such an interesting case. At the time of its release, strong opposition to the Vietnam War was not yet widespread by any means. The reason many may associate this time period with anti-Vietnam War sentiment could be due to Hollywood linking pop music and Vietnam War protests together in the 60s. It wouldn't really be for another year that America would see its first major anti-war song, Buffalo Springfields, for what it's worth. The question remains then, does the Ballad of the Green Berets count as a political song? Well, it serves to prove Plato right that change in music brings about change in society. The Ballad of the Green Berets was written just before the Vietnam War erupted as a controversial topic, and just before people were labeled as either pro-war or anti-war. The Ballad of the Green Berets was simply trying to paint soldiers as virtuous, but it serves to teach us about how messages and music were about to become increasingly politicized. The Ballad of the Green Berets was enjoyed by several listeners, who were skeptical of the points made by those who would belong to the up-and-coming anti-war movement. Such an outcome serves to prove that a music's capacity to be political functions very similarly to music's capacity to elicit certain emotions. Such a mechanism relies on both the music's creator and the music's audience. On the topic of audiences, it's important to ask, what makes us, as listeners, susceptible to the power of ideological music? As has been demonstrated, political music does indeed have an impact on us, so why does it have such an impact? Well, the first thing to look to when looking at the answer to that question, is a simple fact that music is memorable in a way that a lot of other art forms just aren't. We often say that a song is catchy, but we never say that a painting or sculpture is. Simply put, music sticks with us. Lyrics, particularly, seem to stay in our mind for a very long time. When the lyrics in question have a political meaning behind them, it's no wonder that people find themselves favoring certain ideologies due to the music they're exposed to. In addition to just plain memorability, political music impacts us way in the same way all music impacts us, by evoking emotion. While many people understand that music does evoke emotions, many don't consider how music exactly does this. And although the answer may seem simple at first, It's actually a question that many philosophers have debated. The central point of disagreement is this. Is music an expressive art form or not? To better explain that question, let's look at something like a frown versus the sentence, I am sad. Both communicate the same message, that being a message of sadness. However, the way this message is being delivered in these two instances, some would argue is different. Someone attempt to draw the distinction between expressiveness and expressivity. The argument would go something like this. The sentence, I am sad, is expressing sadness, letting those who hear the sentence know that someone is sad. A frown also does this, but it is also communicating what it's like to be sad. In the case of a frown, it is showing us what sadness looks like, in the facial expression in which the corners of the mouth are drawn downward, Across the face. Because the frown is showing what sadness looks like, it could be argued that it is expressive of sadness and not merely an expression of sadness. It's not letting you know that someone is sad, it's showing you what sadness is. With this distinction in mind, many would be inclined to claim that music is also expressive of emotion because through the tempo, melody, and pitches of a piece, it is expressing a specific sentiment. For example, some would say that a piece with a slow tempo is expressive of sadness, much like a frown is. This sounds like the most logical conclusion possible, until you consider the main difference between a frown and a slowly paced song. When we compare the sentence I am sad to a frown, there was one thing that these two examples had in common. That being that there was an object, in this case a person, feeling an emotion, in this case sadness both the sentence and the facial expression were a way of letting others know what a person is feeling. It's just that the case was made that the frown also communicates what sadness is. In the performance of a specific musical piece, is there really something feeling an emotion? The instruments being used to perform the piece certainly aren't. So is there really any comparison between a frown and a piece of music? Some would say yes, by arguing that the object feeling the emotion in a performance is the musicians performing it. This sounds perfectly logical, but then there's a lot of questions which can be asked to oppose that conclusion. Firstly, when a group of musicians are performing a piece written several centuries ago, how can we say for sure they're feeling the same thing the composer felt when they were writing the piece? What's more is, most performances of music include more than one person, usually There are several involved. Who's to say that one musician's emotional interpretation of the piece isn't completely different from another musician's emotional interpretation of the piece? Finally, is it really all that unlikely that composers have the ability to write pieces of music which evoke emotions they aren't feeling at the time, or even about emotions they haven't felt in their lives at all? These questions are the reason musical philosophers are so torn on how and why music evokes emotion in us, there are several theories as to how the whole process works. But one popular one is the contagion theory, which suggests that emotional responses to music can sort of just happen to us instead of being a truly cognitive response to something. The reason this theory is called a the contagion theory is because it proposes that emotions are somewhat contagious. When we're surrounded by a group of sad people, we can become sad as a result. We don't have to know what they're sad about. By extension, we don't have to be sad about what the crowd is sad about. We can be sad and think of our lives as own grievous experiences. Music, followers of this theory suggest, functions in a similar way. When we hear sad music, we become sad as a result. Even if the song isn't about the experience we are grieving to, is even about an experience we've ever had. That's why, when we listen to music, we often think of our own experiences and make a meaning out of that. When we consider the contagion theory's approach to emotional evocation of music, it explains a lot of how political music appeals to, and as a result, sways the opinions of, the masses. When people listen to a song with an ideological message, they can connect their own experiences to what they're hearing. What they're hearing being either an endorsement or condemnation, certain ideas. Just as sad music can make us sad, right-wing music can make us right-wing, left-wing music can make us left-wing, and so on and so forth. When we view political music in this light, we can truly see how powerful of a tool it is. Political music is relatable to us through our own personal experiences and drives us toward an ideology. In a lot of ways, our own political stances are nothing more than a result of our own life experiences. What political music can do is take this process of forming a person's political conscience based on their experiences and expedites it. When we interpret political music's role like that, it makes it sound very much like something which can be taken advantage of, and it certainly has been. So far, the only examples given have been cases in which citizens attempted to put forth their ideas in hopes of spreading them and ultimately achieving their ideal society. As was mentioned earlier, however, political music is not merely just a tool of citizens and the masses, it's also a tool for governments to ingrain their ideas on their populace, no matter what those ideas may be. Now, when we talk about how governments use music to espouse particular beliefs, many people might mentally restrict the use of ideological music to dictatorships or less-than-democratic governments in general. However... As is the same with propaganda posters, speeches, and slogans, ideological music is a weapon wielded both by the republic and the dictatorship alike. The most glaring example of ideological music in a nation or government is a national anthem. National anthems are nearly universal, and because they are universal, they work to challenge the stereotype that political songs are only present in the arsenal of totalitarian dictatorships which seek to manipulate their populace. The national anthem of France, for example, has some very politically charged lyrics. The French national anthem, La Marseillaise, can be described as a reaction to Austria and Prussia's invasion of France in an attempt to quell the French Revolution. In a way, seeing foreign opposition to the revolution empowered revolutionaries to become even more revolutionary, and thus the anthem was written to serve as a marching song for revolutionaries defending France from these invaders. The Marching Song became the country's national anthem in 1870, where the idea whether France was a republic or monarchy was settled on once and for all. France's future was being a republic. Being an anthem born out of opposition to invasion, the anthem's lyrics are pretty aggressive and even quite violent. The first two choruses of the song, the choruses which are most frequently sung at sporting events, translate to Arise, Children of the Fatherland Our day of glory has arrived. Against us, the bloody flag of tyranny is raised. The bloody flag is raised. Do you hear in the countryside the roar of these ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your comrades. Two armed citizens, form your battalions. Let's march, let's march. That their impure blood should water our fields. As can be seen, this piece is very upfront about the beliefs it is espousing. It's attempting to convince a populace that they are under attack by others and that they should attack back. La Marseillaise is a good example of how music can be used to convince soldiers and an overall populace of ideas. Although the version of La Marseillaise used for France's national anthem is unmistakably pro-Republican and approves of what came of the French Revolution, the tune has been used for other purposes too. La Marseillaise de Blanc was a modification of the original song, which was given pro-royalist and Catholic-inspired lyrics in place of its pro-revolution sentiment. Although the same structure is present in this rendition, words and phrases are changed to really make clear who the enemies are. In this case, non-Catholics, revolutionaries, and the blues, which refers to Republicans. This rendition of the song translates as such, Arise, Catholic army! The day of glory has arrived! Against us, the Republic's bloody banner is raised. Do you hear in our countryside the impure cries of the wretches, who come, unless your arms prevent them, to take our daughters, our wives? To arms, Vendéons! form your battalions, march, march, the blood of the blues will redden our furrows. In this case, the song serves as a motivator to the citizens of the Vendée, a region on France's coast in which citizens attempted to resist the Republican forces. Both songs serve as an example to us about the purpose of political music in a national sense. When the state of a nation uses political music, it uses it in an attempt to gain support for ideas. The reason why the state needs support for ideas differs depending on the situation. In the case of Lamazier, citizens and soldiers needed to be driven to fight for their cause, whether that cause be loyalist or republican. There are, however, Other reasons why a nation might employ political music, with some being manipulative. One such example of manipulation through political music was the state of music in Nazi Germany. Music which ran counter to the beliefs of the Nazi Party was banned, and most of the time, this included music created by Jewish composers. To fill this void, the regime aggressively promoted the music of only German composers. Hitler's ideas on the pure Aryan race reflected in how he viewed music. all art as well. Specifically, Hitler was a big fan of Richard Wagner. Wagner was a German composer who Hitler viewed as one calling for German and Aryan greatness, and he viewed his Reich as the answer to that call. Hitler actually said that, in order to understand the Nazi party, one would first have to know Richard Wagner. Hitler and the Nazi party were generally favorable to music composed by those without any Jewish ancestry and those composers which agreed with the ideals espoused by the Nazi party, although some disagreements on which composers were and were not representative of German purity did occur. One thing most of the party did agree on was a general disdain for music born out of modernity. The Nazi party accepted only traditional music. For example, the rising form of atonal music, a music which lacked a distinct central tone, was sharply opposed by the Nazi party, Nazi official, Hans Severa Ziegler, stated, Atonality in music signifies degeneracy in artistic Bolshevism. Head of the Nazi Office of Foreign Affairs, Alfred Rosenberg, said that the whole atonal movement in music is contradictory to the rhythm of blood and soul of the German nation. The Nazi party attempted to control their people by exposing them to only music they deemed as purely German and traditional. By exposing them to this, Nazis bred the nationalism that led to the ideology of the Third Reich. However, what's necessary to consider is that the classical music promoted by Nazi Germany wasn't about politics or the master race. Most of it didn't even contain lyrics. Such a phenomenon serves as more evidence that the audience of a piece can attach a political meaning, even when there is none in the original piece. Lyricless classical music was also accompanied by explicitly pro-Nazi music too, however. Josef Goebbels. The infamous Minister of Propaganda under Hitler's Third Reich was very aware of how important music was in German culture. With this knowledge, Goebbels attempted to reach the citizens of Germany using music. Goebbels would use the skills of Höstwessel to create Höstwessellied, which would become the Reich's official anthem. The song's lyrics attempt to victimize the paramilitary unit of the SA in an attempt to push listeners further into Nazi ideals. The song's lyrics translate to, Raise the flag, the ranks tightly closed, The essay marches with calm, steady step, Comrades shot by the Red front and reactionaries, March in spirit within our ranks. Clear the streets for the Brown Battalions, Clear the streets for the Storm Division, Millions are looking upon the swastika full of hope, The day of freedom and of bread dawns. What we can immediately identify from the anthem is, is the fact that the song is trying to emotionally appeal to people by mentioning the Third Reich's dead soldiers. The other image we are presented with is millions looking upon the swastika full of hope. The song is preying on the hopelessness many German citizens felt after World War I and claiming that the Nazi party will offer these citizens hope. Finally, we come to the line, The Day of Freedom and Bread Dawns. This line is most likely appealing to the unemployment and economic turmoil Germany saw after World War I is promising citizens a day of freedom and of bread, with bread being a common thing used by highly nationalistic movements at the time to represent prosperity. So, now that we've seen how music can either be political or politicized by both citizens and governments, the question remains why should we care? How does this affect our lives? Well, firstly, Pop music, music in general, is something that most of us encounter every single day of our lives. When something that we encounter every single day has an agenda behind it, it becomes vital to be conscious of the ways we are being influenced so that we can do our best to maintain a clear view of the world. Now, this isn't to suggest that all political messages in music are bad and subversive, but it does mean that we must strive to understand the messages in our media better This topic was introduced with the words the past couple of years have been very political. I'm sure many would agree, but what does such a statement mean? Politics is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as the art or science of government. When we think of the role that our government plays, chances are it's a pretty big one. Our government is tasked with making our country cohesive as a whole. Different people believe that such a task is being carried out successfully with different levels of effectiveness. And as a result, there are several different opinions and ideologies out there. All warfare is based on deception. This quote might be one of revered Chinese strategist and philosopher Sun Tzu's best-known statements. If all warfare is based on deception, is it really so much of a stretch to treat politicized media is almost akin to warfare? When the word war is set, what comes to mind? Many will think of tanks, guns, battleships, and other forms of physical combat, but that only covers the small type of war that is between countries, and only physical combat at that. In reality, the word war can cover a lot of other things too. Although many might not consider the media we watch to be part of warfare, it can certainly deceive us. This deception, however, is something we can avoid by being conscious of how we are trying to be sold a specific idea or set of ideas, as was explained. Music is a particularly convincing form of art because of its capacity to be memorable and to stick with us. Because of music's propensity to stick with us, it's very easy to be deceived by it. It's important to know of the tricks at play so that we can stay true to our own beliefs. Such a skill is always valuable, and the past couple of years have only proven it to be more necessary. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time when we go more in-depth on specific political ideologies and the role of the state within several different ones. Until then, happy listening. Next time you listen to your favorite playlist or on the radio in your car, try to pay attention to what's being sold to you. And further than that, try and make a judgment on if you actually agree or disagree with a narrative being put in front of you. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy Cast. We hope you learned something new or gained a deeper understanding of the world around you. Lift us on what you think, and you can tell us your thoughts at thephilosophycast at gmail.com or at philosophycast.com. This has been Alexander Chotai, and I'll see you on the next episode of Philosophy Cast.